Thanks for tuning in to Women in Product Marketing. I'm your host, Mary Sheehan with Adobe. For those of you that are new to the pod, we explore the world of product marketing through the lens of the women who run it at some of the fastest growing technology companies in the world. Shout out to our sponsor, Clue. You're losing 30% of your deals to your competitors. Not cool. That competitive revenue gap is costing your business millions of dollars. So how do you tip the scale in your favor? Clue's competitive enablement platform makes it simple for product marketers and compete pros to give their revenue teams the exact right intel at the exact right time. Positioning, messaging, objection handling, and FUD, Clue shares real-time competitive insights in the places your reps already live. It makes it easy for them to contribute insights from the field. All right, let's do this. Welcome back to Women in Product Marketing. I'm your host, Mary Sheehan with Adobe. I can't wait for you to meet my guest today, Brianne Shally, the head of SMB Marketing at Nextdoor. Brianne is a people-first marketing leader with experience at LinkedIn, SalesLoft, Deloitte, and her own consulting firm. Welcome to the show, Brianne. Can't wait to have you here. Great to be here, Mary. Thanks for having me. So let's start off with our favorite question for season five. It's a biggie. But can you share a time when you failed at something and what you learned? Yeah, I thought this was super timely. Scrolling from my LinkedIn feed this morning, I saw an interview with a NBA MVP who just lost a playoff game yesterday. And one of the journalists asked him, do you feel like you failed? And he said, it's not a failure. It's just steps to success. And he highlighted Michael Jordan as an example where He played 15 years and won six championships. And he said, were those other nine years of failure? No. So just to reframe for me and for others, failure is just a step and really taking advantage of those opportunities to learn from them. So with that in mind, I'll share with you one of my learning opportunities, not at MBA MVP yet, but one of my learning opportunities is really around being customer obsessed. And we are in a situation where we were launching a new product under extremely tight timeline. There was no room for testing, no room for research or any of that, where it was like, let's go with our gut. We're all smart people. Let's put it out there. The product didn't work. We didn't hit the key metrics. And I would say the learnings from that is really leaning in even more so to being customer obsessed because those were the reasons the product wasn't successful. And a couple pieces there is truly knowing the customer and where we were off is we thought we knew the customer, but it was a large TAM, but it was a small revenue opportunity and doing more research around the pricing and the willingness to pay would have helped prove that out. So it didn't make sense to prioritize that audience based on the revenue model. And the second thing there was the billing model that we were introducing didn't resonate with the customer. And we saw a lot of challenges there from a retention perspective. So with those two, just really leaning into being customer obsessed, even if you're moving fast, even if you're under tight timelines, really leaning into that. One thing that I've seen helpful there is partnering with research when you're in a fast, high growth company, and we've had weekly customer interviews. And so we've had them set up with panels, different folks come, different topics, but knowing that they're always there, we were able to iterate really quickly on products. And so if we had 
potentially like a new pricing model we want to introduce. We're like, let's get this in front of Wednesday's panel and be able to iterate really quickly. So that was a balance to learning going forward in terms of being customer obsessed while moving quickly. Oh, wow. So many good takeaways here. First of all, love the Michael Jordan shout out. I don't think anyone would say he is a failure. So I love that that NBA player was able to pull that one out on the fly after losing. That's like, that's impressive. And thank you for sharing that personal story. I think if you haven't had a major fail like that in product marketing, maybe you haven't been doing it long enough or haven't been taking any risks. So always good to have moments like that where you really learn. And I'm so happy for you. It helped you realize this new kind of rapid research that you just had to have, even if it was such a tight turnaround, you know, it has to be part of the process and always being able to point back to that. So thank you for sharing that. That's a wonderful connection to the story. Appreciate it. I would love to talk about your role at Nextdoor. I have to say, I'm such a fan of Nextdoor. I feel like it was kind of a lifeline for me, especially during COVID. Having the app, I met some new mom friends that were able to go on like socially distanced walks with me and my kids at the time. And found babysitters. I found things that you can give away for free or buy for free or, you know, all kinds of amazing things and just kind of keeping a pulse on what's happening in the neighborhood for me. So I've personally loved it as a user, but I'd love to hear more about your role and what Nextdoor is all about. Yeah. Wonderful to hear. And I echo that when puzzles were in short supply in the pandemic, it was great to be able to leverage next door to get fun new puzzles, you know, for good social distancing entertainment during those days. Uh, for me, I joined next door. A lot of what brought me there is my passion for community. I grew up in a small town where neighbors, local businesses gave and got help. And that's organically how I grew up. Since then, I've lived in huge cities and to be able to see that on Nextdoor, how do we bring that kindness to the rest of the world? And so for me, I joined building up a product marketing team across the business, consumer, and government side from one to eight people. And then more recently, leading a lot of the small business marketing across product marketing, content, and web. And within that, really excited to be leading our annual neighborhood faves, which is where neighbors can support their favorite local businesses, vote for them, and really support them. And then on the flip side, great local businesses get to celebrate when they are recognized by their community as being a fave. I find it super helpful to find local businesses on next door. And the reason why I live in a hundred year old building in San Francisco, and it's like, I don't need any plumber. I need a plumber that knows these like old pipes and these different pieces. And so reaching out to those in my neighborhood, you know, with similar hundred year old buildings, I can get trusted recommendations that are local folks. That really means a lot. And so that's been super helpful and wonderful to also support those local businesses in the area as well. That's so great. We'll have to check out the neighborhood faves. I have not. It's coming soon. Yet. Yes. Ooh, I love it. I love it. Well, it's clear from the conversation we've been having so far that you are really passionate about voice of the customer. And you shared even how you're bringing that to things like rapid research and, you know, even I'm sure neighborhood faves has a, a part in this. But can you talk a little bit about some of the ways that you approach the voice of the customer? Yeah. And I'll say first why I'm passionate about it and believe in it. Sometimes people separate inbound from outbound. And they're like, oh, here's the inbound work and the outbound work is separate. Actually, as we all know, voice of customers should come throughout. How does voice and customer shape who we're targeting, shape the messaging and positioning, shape our go-to-market ultimately? And what are the channels that we determine? I always challenge myself and teams, okay, what 
from our insights is shaping the go-to-market. This shouldn't be a cut and paste go-to-market where we know we can do it in our sleep, but taking into account these insights, it should shape it to be more effective. So that's what makes me excited about it. And ultimately I'm passionate about building products people love and taking into account those insights is how you achieve it. Great. A couple of ways that I've done voice a customer. One is I call it one thing I've done at Nextdoor specifically is developed a state of the neighborhood. And so what I've seen in the past is that everyone has their own voice of customer, whether it's a product operations team, a market research team, a user experience team. We're all talking over each other to product and to other cross-functional teams about, quote unquote, what's most important. So what I've done is gotten together with all those other cross-functional teams and say, let's have one source of truth of what we're hearing and seeing. And also I'd include data science and that marketing analytics to have a list that we can surface to product and say, here's the things that are most important. So we're not talking over each other, but can actually be more impactful. And so that's something that I've created at actually just a couple of different companies now. And in doing so, I identified twofold working with cross-functional teams. What are some of the strategic things that we're hearing? And some of those can't be solved overnight. So I'll use an example from LinkedIn. We heard from our members on LinkedIn, it's hard. I don't have confidence to update my profile. You know, it's something that's overwhelming. And that's not something you're going to, oh, let me just build a feature and solve for that. That takes a lot of like, how do we unpack that? On the flip side, there might be more tactical things such as we need this feature or people having struggles with this. And with all those areas, both the strategic and the tactical identify what's the business impact to help inform prioritization. And then also what I do is taking these inputs, you know, across operations teams, across data science, what we're seeing, pull them all together and then time it so it informs the planning process. So if we're in the middle of second half planning, how do I get ahead of that with this source of truth of here's what we're hearing in terms of state of the neighborhood to help influence the roadmap? So that's a key piece there. And I find even customer advisory boards and others helpful. The second thing I've done is I call it voice of customer week. So put on the calendar a bunch of different discussions with customers and ask cross-functional partners to join. And a lot of times people can be nervous, like, ah, and I was like, you don't have to speak. You don't have to do anything. Just come and join and listen. Sometimes I'll ask people to take notes. And what it does is a lot of times Product marketing can be the face to the customer outside of sales, but some of these other teams, operational teams, growth marketing teams don't have those touch points. And it's really a disconnect in terms of why am I doing this? Why is this important? And bringing them face to face, literally with customers, especially with the Zoom and how easy everything is, they get a lot of insights. So have a week, put tons of calendar invites out and people can sign up. And I've just heard so much value in being able to bring that connectivity, especially with folks that don't get those customer touch points. I'm loving uh, both of these. I know you have more, but I, I kind of want to drill in. If, if yes. And so I actually wrote it down, the voice of the customer source of truth. So tactically, how do you do that? So say you have a bunch of different data sources, as yeah. it sounds like you do, especially because you have a marketplace app, you know, yeah. you have people coming in with their businesses, you have lots of users, mobile app, desktop, probably NPS, all kinds of data <laughs> sources. So what is tactically that source of truth and how do you connect it with all the inputs that you're getting? Yeah. The one thing to your point, like there's all these different things is getting alignment with these cross-functional partners on the importance of it. And so not to, you know, simplify that, but that's a key piece in making sure everyone's bought in on the process. And then the second thing we did is, is a little bit of a treasure chest, like 
bring in all these insights, like what are we seeing from the data side? What are they, what is product operations seeing? What is paid marketing seeing? And bringing them all together and it's sorting through all of it, where's signal versus noise. Mm -hmm. And also sometimes there's thematic themes that come between like bringing together a couple of these where we're able to surface it. And that's where I feel product marketing is really valuable in leading this because we bring that analytical mindset where we're able to connect the dots across all these things where coming in from a more of a data perspective, they might have a different thing, but when we're able to connect that with some of the other pieces, but it's definitely like a treasure chest of all these things and bringing in that analytical mindset to identify those strongest signals and then validating them cross-functionally to get those buy-in. Here's what we feel is most important. I love that. And I could see even a kickoff to being voice of the customer (laughs) week, you know, get your t-shirt, get your cupcakes, get everybody on board. And then that can help feed into this treasure trove. I love that. I don't often write things on post-it notes during the interview, but I just wrote that down. Yeah. And it's also helpful because as we know, sometimes it's hard, like what does product marketing own? There's gray areas. And I, this is a unique area where product marketing can provide a lot of value across cross-functional teams and provide that signal. So what I've done in the past is sometimes that some companies do a one pager and like back in the day, print it out and put it on everyone's desk. And you see it there. Like there's no question what's top of mind. Here's like the three things or five things that are top most important for customers. And so product engineering, all those and incorporating obviously sales input as well. They know what's most important. Oh, that's so great. Always a marketer, you know, just not the one sheets. I've totally done that before. That's so great. Amazing. Okay. And I think you had one other way that you bring voice of customer to life at the organization that you work for. So in the past, I've had some pretty significant launches where there's question like, if this isn't an adopted, we might have to roll it back or we're sunsetting something. And it's like, if we get enough pushback from a social perspective, from a community perspective, we might need to make a change. And it's also another question that we've had to address in launching, obviously, is like, what does success look like? And you have the metrics, but there's also the qualitative side. And so one of the things that I've done is like voice a customer expectations for launch. And with that, there's a couple of elements like one, here's a list of hypotheses that we expect. So when we launch, we expect to hear like, oh, we missed this feature or we want this. And so it's a really expectation setting across cross-functional teams. And so when that feedback does come back, you're like, actually, we anticipated this. And when you get new input, it's like, we didn't anticipate this. Let's research this and that more. The second thing that I've done partnering with both social and product ops is having estimates for what we expect the social and the number of cases to be. And this is, I feel, important once when I made a change where we're like, we don't know if we might have to reverse this. And so it gave us a red, yellow, green. Like, so when we knew cases came in, like, are we in the green category? Or are we in the yellow category? And it gave us a hypothesis instead of in the past, what I've seen it be really subjective and people be really reactive. Like, we have a lot of complaints. We should reverse this. And now it was like, no, we have a structured way of thinking about it. We're still in the green category. And okay, we're now in yellow. Let's take another look at this. Do we need to make any changes for this? And so I felt it gained folks aligned up front in terms of what we should expect and set those expectations. And when things were different, then you could address them in a different way and also showed what we expected here based on all the research that we did up front. So great. Yeah, I feel like 
10% of product marketing's job is just stopping everyone from panicking by setting yeah. expectations. <laughs> so, hey, we're expecting 5% of caseload to increase or complaints, NPS score to change, you know, after this launch as people are settling with the change management. So I think that's really a great thing to point out. I love that you tied it back to a launch. One thing I wanted to talk about before we get to your AMAs is yes. you have an amazing CEO who is a woman, Sarah Fryer. I have seen her speak at her nonprofit, um, Ladies Who Launch, which I highly recommend everyone checking out. And just wanted to see from your perspective, you worked at many different companies. What kind of impact does having you know such a strong woman leader as CEO have on the company as a whole, in your opinion? Yeah. Sarah's not only a strong woman leader, she's like literally a superhero. I don't know how she does it all. As you mentioned, she founded Ladies Who Launch, which is a nonprofit that supports women entrepreneurs and incredible that she speaks around the country and around the world supporting it. And not only that, she's on multiple boards, including Walmart and Slack before the acquisition and a couple others as well. So just incredible to see how much she gives back and how passionate she is about community, about local businesses and women. And to your point about the difference I see is one is having a role model. And so being able to look at there is a CEO that is a woman. And I know many of us, whether it's gender, whether it's race or sexual preference, just haven't seen people that look like us in leadership roles. So literally being able to see a female in a leadership role means a lot for me personally. And I would say the second thing that I've seen specifically with Sarah is diversity starts at the top. So we have a very diverse leadership team. Last year was like a third female, a third born outside of the US. So international Sarah was born in Northern Ireland and she brings that. And so with that, it's not even just the C-suite, which therefore has a tops down throughout the company. It's also our board and it really sets the tone. And one of the things that Sarah even says clearly communicates when we look at promotions of individuals within the company, we also look at the diversity of the team. So she walks the talk. And the one thing that I've seen really important about this is a lot of times people are like, one day we're going to do diversity, but we're too small. Like we just need to get someone in ahead of marketing role or a CFO. We just need to get them in regardless. And the challenge is that one day then that company is 100 people and it's not diverse. And then you're trying to get diverse talent and they at that scale don't want to be the first female, don't want to be the first black person. And years ago, even I've talked to companies and I said, there's no diversity on your C-suite. Red what flag. does that say? Yeah. <laughs> and so the fact that Sarah has been so proactive and vocal about it and walking the talk means a lot to me. That's so great. I'm almost tearing up just hearing you talk about it. I mean, I don't think I've interviewed anyone else at all the tech companies who talked to on the show that has had a woman CEO. And there's, I think this is interview number 50. So that's pretty telling, you know? So yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. Yes, yeah, Sarah is amazing. It's great to see that it's impacting every level and that diversity is not just lip service. It's something that is really through and through in every level, like you were saying, you know, with their background, sexual preference, skin color, gender, where everyone was born. I mean, there's so many ways that you can have a diverse C-suite, diverse management team. So I'm just really happy to see them walking the walk. And I think for something like Nextdoor, 
where it's really meant to connect the dots with these communities that are very diverse. It's really important to have that kind of connection. So thank you for doing what you do, Sarah. If you listen to this, but yeah, that's really think, cool. <laughs> to that point, it's a reminder for all of us, like we can do it. Like, mm-hmm. and how do we, whether ourselves or support others around us to drive that diversity and make sure it's a priority for all of us. Because when you say one in 50, like, how do we change that? Yeah. Recently, I was talking about how even on the teams that you manage projects for, so if you're hosting a launch or any project Mm -hmm. that you're working on, you can choose the team and make sure that it's a diverse team based on the candidates that you have. So making sure that in the power that you have, you know, anyone listening here that you're making the team as diverse as possible. Um, Also, in addition to hiring and making sure that those practices are in place too, but we can all be part of it as well. So good reminder. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the ask me anything questions that you've done. Thank you. I think you've done two over the years and we've pulled out some of the top questions that you've answered and want to go through these now. So first one is what are good OKRs for product marketing? So OKRs are objectives and key results. Yeah. I think one with OKRs, even though there's a playbook and there's a book written on OKRs, every company approaches them a little bit differently. So definitely understand how your company approaches them first. The second, I have two thoughts on it. First is I've had OKRs in the past. And one was like, we wanted to drive product engagement by X percent. And us on our own with product marketing drove it like increased at 0.01%. It was like, not exciting. And then we partnered with product on this in-product communication, improving the positioning within the product, and we increased it 1%. However, we didn't have 100% attribution to that. What I strongly believe in is at the end of the day, it's all about what impact you're delivering, even if it's shared attribution. So partnering with product, identifying what are the goals that we have together and working towards those to have the greatest impact at the end of the day and creating that value. So aligning with product or other cross-functional partners to have those shared OKRs, I find is most important. The second one is to make sure, have some that are attributable to product marketing itself to be able to demonstrate the unique value of product marketing and make them measurable. And this is where sometimes it's been more challenging, I'll admit. And it's kind of always like, what does success look like for product marketing? How do you measure it? And so I've seen this more so on the consumer side of product marketing, but even thinking about like, okay, we have an objective to be customer obsessed. Is that having one customer advisory board meeting this quarter, 10 interviews and running MPS to identify like, you know, three recommendations we have. And so being that quantifiable piece is important. And the last thing that I've done is, as I refer to non-OKRs, and I try to take busy out of my vocabulary. Everyone's busy. There's so much going on. And so really a fan of ruthless prioritization. So identifying with my team and cross-functional partners, what are we not doing? And doing these, these aren't like easy things. Like we're not going to do this, that everything agrees on. It's things that are hard trade-offs and like tough conversations, whether with product or others that we're not going to do this quarter because we're really prioritizing on these things. And I find this really helpful to gain alignment on what's most important. And in gaining alignment, another learning that I've had is OKRs are a lot of times developed in silos where I say, you're planning for the quarter, you write out your OKRs, and then you throw them over the fence. OKRs, especially with product marketing, 
there's a lot of dependencies on others. And so making sure if you have OKRs or your cross-functional partners that you're dependent on, also having those OKRs to make sure that you're aligned and that they're prioritizing it as well, because that's when I've seen a lot of disconnect where it's like your number one OKR, but another team, it's like not even there. And so then mid quarter, it's really hard to get those resources or the support you need because you're not aligned. So important. And I think that goes back to your first point about PM and PMM actually having shared OKRs in a lot of instances yeah. really makes sense. So you're not like, hey, my number one OKR is actually at odds with your number one OKR and then nothing happens. And you're like, what did we even do this quarter? So I think those are all really good points. And yeah, there's not, I'm thinking of every team I've worked on, there's probably not even one OKR that has gone between them because the state of the business is so different or the customer audience is so different. So yeah, you need to get the right team in place and figure out what you want to accomplish and what you truly want to impact and go from there. So those are great. Okay, this is getting into some career chat and this is really specific. And a lot of times we talk about, you know, how do you get into product marketing or how do you become a manager? But this question is really specific around how do you make the jump from a senior manager level to the director level? Yeah, I would say my perspective on this has changed over the years. Probably like five years ago, I would have given you a direct answer. Like, here's the five things you need to do. And now I have a different perspective. Part of it is that at Nextdoor, we don't have titles. And I've seen time and time again, people go for a title and then they get there and they don't know what's next or go for a goal. And a great example is Michael Phelps. He is the most decorated Olympian. And afterwards, he's like, what's next? I don't know what it is. And so I really try and take away titles, even discussions I have with team members on their goals and ask, what is it you want to get? Because your experience is going to get you your next role, your next experience, not your title. And we all know in tech and other environments, titles are inflated. Some companies, everyone's a VP. Some companies, director is extremely senior and more of an SVP than others. And so it's really about the experience and what you want to learn and grow and focusing on that. And that will give you career progression, whether it's a title or not. And even so much, I interviewed someone once and they're like, I need to be a VP at my next company. And if that's most important to you, this company is probably not a fit for you, but unpacking to understand what you really want from that perspective. So that's my little soapbox on like titles and growth and the jump. I would say a couple things just to maybe unpack the question. It's ultimately, how do you grow in your career? Mm -hmm. And I think a couple of things there is, you know, identify what you want to focus on look at folks have mentors, those that have been successful and what you want to emulate. And I heard a great question the other day is understanding what success looks like at your company as well. And so asking the question, like who's been a hero here at the company and understanding what did they do to become a hero and identifying what are that specifics that made them a hero at a company and what of that do you want to emulate? at the end of the day, to be able to demonstrate that career progression and know also what does success look like at the company and what is rewarded. At the end of the day, if you're able to demonstrate impact and results and work well with people and collaborate and add value, that's usually where you see career progression. That's a good answer. I love just the taking away the title and understanding what do you really want. And I think There's a lot of times in your life too, where maybe that job isn't the right 
fit for you, actually, if you really want work-life balance, like, do you need that? Or, you know, there's just certain things that I think to keep asking the why really important. Like, what do you actually want? Like, what do you want your day-to-day to look like? What do you want your life to look like? What is the end goal here? You know, taking the title away. I think that's really good. It's kind of hard to hear, but I think that's super important. And then I love just understanding the process, working the process, <laughs> winning at the process, yeah. figure out what the process is at your company, ask people that have promoted. And I also love your other point about finding those heroes, those champions, those people that have done it. What did they do? How did they actually make it and set up time with them if they're available, coffee and really understand that. So those are really great, solid ways to do it because it's going to be different at every company. And yeah, senior manager to director is going to look so different depending on what your company is, what stage they're at, what the director title means. But I think those are all really valid points. And one thing you said, even figuring out what's important to you. So I transitioned to product marketing. I was leading a team and to get this product marketing role internally at the company I was working for, I had to transition to an IC role. And so if I was just focused on making it to the next title, I would have not received this opportunity to pivot. And I learned a ton and I've continued to learn a ton as I've pivoted throughout my career. And I think it's humbling. Like I was approving invoices and then I had to create one and I had no idea how to create an invoice, which was you know, but then again, I got promoted and was leading a team again. So just encourage people to really unpack what's important to them and sometimes get the ego out of the way. Wow. That's such a great example to share though. Thank you for sharing that. Cause I think that is a little bit of humility to say, okay, well, I've been managing team all this time, but I really want to make this career shift. I'm going to have to, you know, work it and get my hands dirty again as an IC, but really learning it again. I really respect that you did that. And yeah, product marketing is hard. And so it would be hard probably hard to come in and manage a team for the first time if you haven't been a product marketer too. I'm sure people have done it, but it's cool that you went that route and you're like, I know I want this. I want it back. Yeah. <laughs> well, great. Well, one more AMA question. What are some innovative launch activities you've done that were successful? And by the way, I also just want to share that recently I've been playing around a lot with Gen AI, you know, and um, we had a guest on the show earlier this season, Megan Keeney Anderson, and she works at a company called Jasper. And they just released a feature that lets you like put in a product launch and it will spit out (laughs) really innovative ideas. And I'm like, I wish I had this all along. And also, are we still going to have a job? So anyways, side note, but like there's ways to help with this, but I'd love to hear what you've done in the past that has been innovative as well, because even with Gen AI, I feel like It's not going to be as innovative as our product marketing leaders and the way that they think. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Not to compete with that. And I'm (laughs) really excited about what's going to come with the AI space. And it will be interesting to see like all the work we've done around messaging, positioning and research, like how close can we get with the AI piece. I'll share one launch we did and I'll share like, you know, some that was innovative about it and some that like didn't work just to show two sides of that coin. When I joined Nextdoor, it was mid 2020. So we know all the uncertainty going on in the world and Nextdoor really saw the opportunity that they recognized people were at home more, where a lot of them were purging stuff that they, because they were home more, needed to get rid of stuff. And they also wanted to support the community and give back. And so within a short time period, we recognized this need within the community. And so we developed something called sell for good and sell for good was the ability to sell, you know, maybe you have that bike you've outgrown or your kids have outgrown. And so let me sell it. And I can donate a portion of the profit to a nonprofit. 
And so incredible in that it was a win-win, especially as we know, during the pandemic, nonprofits were faced with reduced donations and then increased demand with everything going on in the world. So they were facing a challenge there. So just that win-win opportunity about people being able to get rid of stuff and then do something for good. So really meeting a unique need that we had in the market. So that was successful from that perspective and something that was like not on the roadmap prior to the pandemic. On the flip side, one of the things we did as part of the go-to-market, and as I mentioned earlier, how do you partner these insights that we have with the go-to-market approach? And so we could have just done a, as I call it, the cookie cutter go-to-market, but one of the things we thought is by partnering with nonprofits to really amplify it. So we identified a diverse group of nonprofits to help amplify and to get their donors and their community active in it. And one of the philosophies we have at Nextdoor is like to try things that don't scale. So after we launched, we weren't seeing as much traction with these nonprofits. So we literally partnered with a nonprofit. We got on the phone and we're like, what can we do? And they were like, we have an upcoming meeting. So we created collateral for them and we did all these things. And what we realized is like nonprofits aren't set up for success to run these campaigns and do all this marketing. They're doing 15 million other things, especially during the pandemic, they're trying to raise a lot of funds to meet the needs of their community. And so it was super helpful to partner with this nonprofit and really understand the challenges that they face as a nonprofit. And that when we were asking them like, oh, create this flyer, create this email, these were all like above and beyond asked that they weren't able to scale and they weren't able to do. And so we really got a ton of insight on how we need to partner successfully with nonprofits and how they are a challenging channel because we all think we're resource constrained, nonprofits are truly resource constrained and what they're doing. And so that was a huge learning and the learning really came from rolling up our sleeves and, you know, creating material for a nonprofit and partnering with them, even though we knew that wouldn't scale, it unpacked a ton of learnings for us. So amazing. And you know what? I don't think Jenny, I could come up with either of those. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> our jobs are safe. Those are great. And how amazing you both of them were, you know, in this time that nonprofits really needed so much help. People were struggling with figuring out how they could give back and then finding these key pain points where you could really help. So this is really amazing. Well, okay. I can't believe it, but it's already time for our lightning round. So thank you so much for your answers so far, but we'll do these ones real quick. Who have been your strongest product marketing mentors to date? Yeah, there's three amazing women I would love to highlight. Sydney Sloan for her leadership skills. Heidi Anderson, CRO of Nextdoor for her passion for driving customer value. And Liza Sperling, who's also been on the show as a true just partner in crime and someone that I can depend on as a friend and a professional colleague. I love the Liza shout out. I love all of these, but the Liza shout out in particular, that makes me really happy. It's so great to have peers and friends that you can connect with along this journey. So that's, that's amazing. All right. It's hard to boil down, but what would you say is the one thing that has been most important in terms of growing your career? Ultimately knowing yourself and staying true. And it's a journey and continued evolution, but knowing what you want and staying true to that. That's really beautiful. Well, last question for you. Why product marketing? I love product marketing it's something new every day and it's dynamic and specifically it leverages both the creative and analytical side of my brain 
And I love at the end of the day, building products and services people love. And that's my way to help make a difference in the world. Amazing. Well, Brianna, it's been so amazing having you on the show. I'm so glad we got to connect and thank you for everything that you do with Nextdoor and the product marketing community. Really value your time today. Thank you. This show is produced by Sharebird, the knowledge sharing platform for the fastest growing teams. It's the place to get on-demand answers to your questions and learn from leaders in the top of their field. Want more advice and insights? Head to sharebird.com.